We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the ratings and reviews. Thanks for the emails. Thanks, thanks, and thanks. Now, on to my guest for today, Jonathan Hensley, Chief Creative Officer of Emerge Digital Transformation, which helps empower businesses to build products and better companies. Jonathan grew up in the Bay Area, where he was exposed at an early age to the emerging computer industry. He took his parents' interest in psychology and combined it with his fascination with tech. He became obsessed with understanding the connection between the new technologies and human behavior, an obsession that he has grown and changed just as the tech industry has grown and changed. Emerge has grown through several iterations, starting with helping to solve the problems of infrastructure, then to applications, to now with focusing on empowering companies and their teams to grow and be resilient, using alignment as the core principle of success. Jonathan's desire to help companies and his recognition of the high failure rate among startups led him to do a deep dive into understanding why so many companies fail and what can be done to increase their chances of success. And it all came down to alignment, an argument that he develops in his most recent book, Alignment, Overcoming Internal Sabotage and Digital Product Failure. Companies need to be aligned on multiple levels to succeed. Those are product market fit, organizational, and within among teams and on the individual level and where everyone in the company has like this clear understanding of what the company's mission and what their role is in contributing to that success. Jonathan also explains why failing fast and often might not be the best strategy for an inspiring entrepreneur. Now, let's get better together. Jonathan Hensley. Welcome to the podcast. Jared, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on. We were talking a little bit uh, before we recorded about our experiences in healthcare and the world and got to share some great stories, get to know you a little bit more. And you're you're running a product agency, I think is the way you call it, called Emerge. Done some super cool, like, I'm really impressed by a lot of these things that you guys have done, including that one airplane kit thing that I'm like, so want to buy, but I just don't think I can afford it. But um, it's interesting uh, how, you know, we experience the world through, especially online through UX, UI and product design and and some uh, how we had talked a little bit about how healthcare is a lot way behind and everyone knows that listens to the show. I've got a ton of experience dealing with the healthcare system. Um, But before we kind of dig into what you're doing at Emerge and some of the great stuff you've been working on, uh, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? So, 
you know, it's, it's not the most glorious answer, but the, you know, the honest answer is I, I fell into it a bit. Um, I grew up originally in the Bay Area and I was surrounded by all of these incredible tech companies at a time where as a kid, you had just incredible access. I mean, I remember being able to go on the Hewlett Packard campus and grab parts for building computers. And I was just a curious kid at heart. Um, I had parents who were psychologists and I just naturally found this fascination with behavioral psychology and technology. And that just as the internet uh, came into fruition in the mid nineties, I found myself at this epicenter around seeing how a technology was literally transforming the way people were living and working in real time. And that just became something I was obsessed with understanding and wanted to be a part of that change that was happening in the world. And eventually that evolved into helping startups and fortune 100 brands develop and improve their products and services and go through digital transformation. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Silicon Valley too. So it was kind of like, yeah, everyone's a founder where, I mean, even going to school and, you know, we could, you know, again, walk into HP, we used to go to these hacker meetups and clubs where everyone would be like, Oh, let's copy software. And like, that's back when it was on floppy disks and stuff. That's how old I am. <laughs> Those were the good old days, Jeremy. I'm telling you, I mean, I remember being the only kid and you'd walk into these rooms and there'd be all these, you know, hardcore like IBM engineers and early, you know, like early, you know, uh, electrical engineers working on, you know, Apple products and software engineers trying to figure stuff out. And it was just like this. I mean, the whole Valley felt like a giant club at the time. I mean, it's a very different space today, but you know, that it was an incredible time to grow up in the Valley and be able to be a part of that. Um, And if you had a passion for it, you were in. That's all it took at that point. Yeah. I mean, that was back in the roots of the homebrew computer club and, you know, all those sort of things, which was predated me a little bit, but that's still that ethos of we all got together and trying to figure it out. Cause that, this was back, you know, Apple II, Texas Instruments, you know, TI, you know, the very first IBM computers. It, it was a different time. You know, it just felt, yeah, it felt like, gosh, we're just all in this together trying to figure it out. And nowadays, I think that gets lost in the hustle and bustle of, oh, man, I just want to be a unicorn for my tech bro startup app <laughs> to do blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I give them those guys a tough time just because, like, if you're going to do something with your life, like, do something meaningful. Like, nobody needs another tech bro app. <laughs> I mean, maybe tech bros do, but, you know, the world doesn't. So, Interesting. So how, how did you actually, so you fell into all this. I mean, the typical way that, you know, these sort of agencies work or product agencies, digital transformation agencies, is it like, was there just one specific thing you started off with and it sort of grew out of it? Cause you know, it's interesting. Cause you know, I have an agency too, and it's just funny how there's an evolution of it that you just can't predict. And I'm curious, did you go in with it with just like one intent and then it kind of morphed into something else or you're just like, oh, Jari, come on, man. I had the whole thing laid out forever. <laughs> oh, not even close. We're probably on like the seventh version of the company at this point, maybe oh, cool. more. I mean, we've gone through so many evolutions to learning what we're the best at, to figuring out you know, what the market needs as it changes, to understanding where we can actually create value and contribute in a meaningful way in the world of of technology and creating better experiences. I mean, there's this massive evolution. I mean, when we started, we were operating in the very beginning more like a think tank. This was all brand new. And a lot of businesses were trying to figure out, you know, what's possible? What can I do with this technology and where does it fit into my business? And so we were in these really nascent stages of understanding the technology. And it was, you know, internet 1.0, we were just laying down the infrastructure, you know, for a decade was mostly infrastructure work. I mean, there was very little true software sitting on top of that infrastructure for quite a while. So there was a lot of just understanding what was happening within that, that space for business. And then starting to understand, okay, well, what does this actually mean? And there was a whole new uh, emergence of 
product thinking and design thinking as a move to digital. Like what does a digital product even mean? What do I have to consider that we've never considered in traditional product design? How does that transform branding, communications, all, all of the components of, of a business and encapsulate being able to ideate a product and eventually bring it to market and serve uh, customers. So we had to figure out how do we fit into that landscape and, and what we do. And, you know, we, in the beginning also had, so we had a big role in hardware early on, and then we divested out of hardware and we started to also work with a lot of uh, marketing and PR firms and started to work on, you know, massive campaigns and doing things today, which are pretty uh, common, but back then was, you know, um, it was all duct tape and, you know, gum and chicken wire, like trying to figure out, cause it just never had been done before. And so we were still kind of in that innovation space and think tank space, even as we were evolving and shifting our services. Um, but we were offering those to a different part of the market than where, where we had started, you know, fast forward to today. And, you know, we're really hyper-focused on this idea now and going forward of how do we empower product leaders and their teams? And so that forces us to have to be a company that can work with uh, the executive team down to the individuals and the product team. And a lot of times building bridges between the two. And so that requires an entirely different set of uh, skills and uh, disciplines and our design team and our strategy teams and our engineering groups that we have um, and how we actually choose to engage with customers. So we've been through this massive evolution over the last 20 plus years. Wow. So what are some of these new trends that, that you, you're seeing? I mean, you've retransformed or reimagined or, I don't know, revitalized seven times. Like, is it, is there always some like catalyst for it or is it just like, Oh, wow. You know what? This is the next thing we got to figure it out. Well, for us, it's always been uh, working from this idea of inside out. We can respond to the market and you can put a new, you know, new siding up on a building, so to speak, but you actually have to work from the inside out and really look at, you know, how are we going to modernize? How are we going to become, maintain relevance and build, become a sustainable business? And so for us, it's always been that gut check of, you know, where's, where's technology going? How is this impacting people? Where is it bettering people's lives? And what are the problems that actually need to be solved? And so we've always focused on that and through time that the answers to those questions have changed. Um, The questions themselves are still the same questions we ask ourselves again and again all the time. So, you know, with Internet 1.0 is infrastructure related. 2.0 was more about, you know, focusing on the application layer. And, you know, now we're more in 3.0 with, you know, more of an experiential focus and it's it's more of a platform idea across uh, the, the Internet. Um, And we've moved away from really a predominant focus on transactional related experiences to more understanding human behavior and where that's going to take us in the evolution of product and sophistication. And 4.0 is coming with industrial revolution uh, and IoT coming in with things like ubiquitous connectivity and so forth. So these are all things that we're adapting to, but the core of our business doesn't change. Now we know our job at, in its essence is to empower that product owner and how do we help them do that? And um, they have an incredible amount of responsibility that they have to focus on. And so we've organized ourselves to be able to support each facet that they're being um, held accountable to delivering outcomes on. So how do you, interesting. So how do you think like artificial intelligence and machine learning, is that part of internet 3.0 or do you think that's more 4.0 or is it just a completely different catalyst? No, it's a, it's a tool. I mean, I think that the great way to think about it is like AI and machine learning as it exists as a tool within that ecosystem. And so the wonderful thing about, you know, technology and what we're doing today is that there are new tools coming out to accomplish different jobs and handle the complexity that we're dealing with. So machine learning was, it was an amazing uh, evolution because for a decade, people have been collecting uh, data and they would, you know, the big thing for a long time was big data and, and talking about that, but people were sitting on these, you know, 
mountains of data and not knowing what to do with them. <laughs> I, I always say and, people, people collect a hundred times more data for every one data point they actually look at. Exactly. And I think the, the challenge with that data is it's not to say it's uh, not valuable. It is. It's extremely valuable. But majority of that data was transactional. Yeah. And the uh -huh. challenge with the transactional data and where we're going now is that if it's not combined with behavioral insight, it is, um, it's not actionable in most cases. So a good example of that is if I want to really connect in a meaningful way with a customer, whether, and it doesn't matter, you can be a startup, you can be, you know, a hundred billion dollar company. It's the same issue. What are the motivations of my customers and what triggers the need for my product or service? Hmm. Transactional data doesn't tell us that. It tells us what they bought, when they bought it, for how much they bought that maybe frequency of purchase if it's a repeat purchase, but it doesn't tell us anything of what triggered the need for that purchase, why they're purchasing, you know? And so there's a lot of other facets that have to be considered when you're creating, um, you know, products and services today, and you're trying to create that stickiness and engagement with customers. One of the other major facets to that, that I think is really interesting is that you have at the same time happening right now is a massive evolution from an internal perspective, um, both for established organizations and in the entrepreneurial space, uh, where new companies are being built, where we're moving from an industrial era model of command and control, and we're moving into empowered and autonomous teams. And that's only being amplified with uh, the events of the last two years and COVID and having more distributed teams um, that, are, that are being virtualized. And so I bring that up very specifically because when you talk about these new technologies, then you also talk about needing to make connect with the things that we already have like data and making sure we have insight to drive that data fluidly. The companies that are succeeding the most are doing it differently. They're moving away from these traditional models. They change the way that they staff, they change the way that they approach solving problems. And they, they are looking and focused on that pinpoint of behavioral insight to drive you know, the, the evolution versus being focused on features um, and deliveries. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up about the, the data of transactions versus behaviors and why, why things trigger. Like I'm always fascinated by this because I have a bunch of friends in AI and machine learning and every, every other startup puts ML or AI in their name, but that's about the, all the machine learning and AI they have. <laughs> it's just in the name <laughs> It's a big joke because this stuff's hard to do. And, you know, there's a lot of it. You don't even need those techniques, but people say it because that's the newest thing. Um, but it's so fascinating about focusing away from features and functions and more on behaviors and experience. Because I think a lot of the features and functions are starting to become commoditized. I, it's, you know, I, I follow um, this guy named uh, Pep Laya, who's the CEO of CXL as well as the CEO of Winter. And I actually interviewed him on the show because I really look up to what he does. And he always says that you have to compete on brand and not on features because pretty much, and I'm paraphrasing, features are commoditized. Features are, I mean, anyone can do anything. It's like, you got to build this experience and the behavior. And that's what they he tries to teach people at CXL and also at Winter where you can actually get people to comment on your copy of your webpage. That's what he does for, for B2B companies. And so this whole idea of behavior and the experience and building that goes, I think, way more important than the features and functions. Like, you know, with the no code movement, you could build pretty much anything. Well, I mean, it's, if you don't connect with the, the actual needs and motivations and behaviors of your customer, you're in one, you're commoditizing, you might be playing a strategy that's, for example, targeting the low end of the market, which is, which is a strategy. Um, but more than likely, you're not going to make it, you're going to be missing market fit. You know, over the last decade, I've been obsessed with this idea of understanding why products fail. And just, you know, earlier this year, I actually released a book about this topic as well. But the, the, the essence of that and the reason I got so consumed about it is I started to see data coming out about the amount of failure that was happening. Mm -hmm. And in more recent years, 
that data has shown that on average, about 84% of all digital transformation or product initiatives fail or are underperforming. So in an industry that's in the last year spent a little over $2 trillion, it's estimated to go up to $6 trillion globally with an 84% failure rate. That is a staggering loss. That's abysmal. So something's wrong. The, yeah, it's something is fundamentally not connecting there. And so, you know, I started to look at, you know, where have we made mistakes? Where are our peers making mistakes? Where are our clients and our and friends? And, you know, and I, I spent a decade basically trying to understand this, this question of why does that failure take place? And what it came down to was, you know, after all of these interviews and all this research and is, you know, usually the answer would be, well, there wasn't market fit. It wasn't Mm -hmm. the right time, or we didn't know how to connect with our customer. And, but when you really looked at all of these issues and you, and you actually distilled it down, it all came down to one theme and the theme was misalignment. Mm -hmm. And so that started me on a trajectory of like, okay, well, that's a really interesting concept. Let's think about, well, what does, what is, what is alignment then? And then who are the people that are beating those odds? Not once, but consistently. I mean, again and again and again and again. And from just a statistical probability, it shouldn't happen. So that if it is, they're doing something very different. And it's not like right. one or two people. There's, there's a lot of people that are doing this and defying those odds again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that set an entire new path of research for years, just out of personal obsession of understanding the question. Right. Um, and that's, you know, and, and the exact opposite theme emerged, as you would expect. It was literally alignment. The you know, inverse was taking place. Then it was like, okay, well, let's define alignment. Let's really understand what is happening in these organizations. It's different. And so, you know, market alignment was really about dealing with understanding the customers and their needs and and that behavior of understanding what's the problem that they, they need to solve with your product or service. And I think it's really, uh, you know, fascinating when you dig into that, I mean, there, when we really codified it, there was four levels of alignment, but when we talk about what we've been talking about, the, this customer specific piece, you know, it was, that was really the, the essence of, um, you know, this idea. And so whether or not, I, I mean, maybe you've read like innovate, uh, the innovators dilemma from mm-hmm. Clay Christensen, yeah, for sure. you know, great, great book. Um, awesome book. You know, there's there's some really interesting things that take place around this idea of when somebody is hiring your product to do something, what what are they hiring it for? And how do we understand that behavior? And, you know, just sticking with this focus on the market alignment piece. And there's this great quote, uh, you know, in there that people are not buying quarter inch drills. They're buying quarter inch holes. Yep. The drill just happens to be the best tool to do it. Right. I love, I love that. It's, it's the other, the other framework, the job to be done framework, which I don't remember who. who no, that's Clay Christensen as well. I mean, yeah. That's, oh, okay. That's so yeah, he, he, he kind of like amplified it. Cause there um, what was interesting is because I was reading a book called loon shots. I don't know if you've heard of loon shots. I've heard of it. I haven't it's read it. It's an excellent, I mean, top five book on innovation. It's almost better than the innovators dilemma, honestly. And uh, I don't remember the name of the guy off the top of my head, but highly recommend this book. And the reason is, is because he was trying to get at like the innovation side about how you have to have these loon shots, these wacky ideas to sort of push your way forward. But also through that loon shot ideas, you start to get all of these um, different disciplines interacting. Mm -hmm. And it's always in the crossover of things like, you know, um, healthcare is an example we were talking about before. Digital health is taking everything that IT and SaaS people do and apply it to health. Well, that's hard because health people have a different mindset, but it's the, it's the crossover of all of these things because there's new problems to solve and you can't solve these problems the old way. So super interesting. Yeah, yeah. The jobs, yeah. I, I, love, I love that. When I was in grad school, we, of course, read that because <laughs> yeah. – 
everyone and and when you get a MBA has to read Clay Christensen. <laughs> it's I think it might it's probably on most reading lists, I think, for a lot of people. It, yeah, it, it is. It's, and it's a great it's book, a really yeah. good one. Yeah. It's book. and it's just so funny that when you know on this you know topic, it's like, okay, well, from that research, if you look at what alignment means, you know, that market alignment is is a fundamental piece and and you know, certainly it's where value creation takes place. But behind that, you know, if the idea is 1%, it's the delivery on that idea that actually is where all the work takes place. And that's where alignment is happening behind the scenes. It's organizational alignment, which deals with, you know, you know, aligning the organization's vision, resources, and capabilities to deliver on it. It's team alignment, you know, unifying skills, disciplines, unique perspectives, and, um, and, you know, and experiences in their lives and bringing them together with a common goal. And then there's the individual element of alignment, which is understanding how does my work make a difference? How do I contribute to something bigger than myself? And the people that are beating the odds every time are operating at all four levels of alignment. Yeah. Yeah. It's seems simple. <laughs> Easier said than done. You know, on, it's on the business side of it. I think it's really interesting. And, you know, and certainly, you know, with the work that you do here, I, I'm sure there's, there's a, you know, a counterpart to this, but, you know, so often when we're working with a, a client or we're looking at a problem, one of the fundamental questions we ask is, well, what's your vision? What, what does success look like? Right. Common question. Yeah. Most often the answer is something kind of lofty and ambitious focused. Um, and it is not measurable. Yeah. And when you look at what great product, uh, a great product vision is, it gives you a clear destination of where you're going and, it, and it's measurable. And if you don't have something that's clear, how would you expect anyone in an organization to be able to make the decisions necessary and solve the problems that are required to get there? Because they no, don't know where they're going. You're 100% right. You're 100% right. I mean, I, I, I find this problem all the time in tech startups, especially when it comes to storytelling and understanding what their big idea is. Normally, it's feature-driven. And look at how cool our tech is as opposed to, well, what the hell does this thing actually do? And I always tell them, look, you got to be clear, concise, and compelling big idea in order to get things to move. Because as the, the message and the story percolates through an organization, it's like playing a game of telephone. Like the more complex it is, it gets warped. And you can you can tell this so easily when 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 the vision is not clear, concise, and compelling, you get misalignment. I mean, it's it's obvious. And, and I and that's why it's interesting that you bring this up because. You're right. Um, typically, there. I always like to say that you have to be specific to be universal. And this is a very common storytelling technique. When you're writing a story, the more specific it is, the more universal it can become. And you say, well, why is that? Like, I want to take these grand visions. Well, what, what happens is when you go down a path of a problem that's very specific and you've laid it out, it's your experience, people take that, integrate it, and then find their own story in it because you have detailed, this is what I went through as an example. And I found that when you do that for like a, a, an, an, some sort of initiative or product or service or whatever, like that's the beachhead. Like the beachhead is we're going to do X. And yeah, of course we could do a thousand other things, but the beachhead is most important because that story has to stick. In order for the whole organization to sort of like what you said, align behind it, because it is so hard, <laughs> so hard to tell the story repeatedly to get everyone like singing the same tune. So it's yeah. so interesting that that you're. It's, I mean, in your book of the same name, alignment, that seems like great name. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, uh, the, you know, once once that you know, I learned that, and and talking to more and more people, it was right. you know. I actually didn't go into an intending to write a book at all. It actually oh. came through, you know, the more I talked to people, the more they said, you need to be writing a book on this topic because it's not, it's something that 
some people are lucky enough to know instinctually or have experienced their own careers and they've been mentored to understand these principles, uh, but not something that they can go out and here's a resource to help me understand it. Here's how it's been codified and here's what it means, you know, and at that organization level, you know, again, you know, we were talking a little bit about this before the show, you know, even too, it's like, this idea of like, well, what happens underneath the vision? Like there's all these stages of, of aligning an organization, teams and individuals. They're not siloed by any right. means. They're all, they're, they're interconnected. And so like another really good example of that is like this idea of customer experience. Like does everyone have shared uh, understanding, not just a definition, but an understanding of what customer experience is and all of those goals have need to equal one very simple thing for any business, lifetime customer value. Yeah. That's the metric. Yeah. And so lifetime customer value for a SaaS company might be different for, than for a healthcare company. And they can measure that uh, in, in different ways based on the values, mission, and purpose of the company. Right. But the essence of it is still exactly the same. And if you realize that, then it's, and you have that in your structure in your organization, realize Every single business function, sales, marketing, customer support, you know, the product teams, finance, legal, everybody knows that everything that they do has to add to customer lifetime value. Yeah. Yeah. And once they do that, you see exponential improvement in competitive advantage and ability to adapt to changes in the market and, and success. And those are just the first two points of alignment. I mean, there's a whole sequence that goes all the way down to the product level. Yeah, and so it's it's amazing to see how that transforms an organization's culture to be working from a place of alignment, um, in, in in such a powerful and positive way. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's so it's so true. And and like you know, I when I advise people about telling better stories, one of the things, one of the frameworks that over time I've developed is this idea called the story funnel, and the story funnel is about how to. Um, tell a better story throughout the entire life cycle of your company, which goes from a prospect to a customer, to an advocate. And what I've found to your point, which is so true. And I, I don't say it exactly this way, but I love the way you said it. It's like universally as a company, our job, I mean, and the ultimate in marketing is building advocates, right? It's like, Oh, I like the best marketing in the world is someone saying, Hey, you got to go, you know, you got to go use Emerge. They're the best in the world. Don't even look at anyone else. They're awesome. And if they trust me, they'll be like, oh yeah, I'll go check it out. That, you know, word of mouth, referral, whatever is the ultimate, that advocacy. That advocacy is what your whole company needs to align to so that, you know, they can have a long, because if you're an advocate customer, then you're probably a long-term, have a higher long-term value. And what I found with startups in particular is that they worry about like the north of buy type stuff, which is like, oh, just get them to buy with digital ads and da 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 da, and then they they land, click buy, and then the rest of the entire process is horrible. And this is especially true for IoT companies, <laughs> where the onboarding for whatever reason no one can ever onboard an IoT. It's like ridiculous. But you're right. It's like, it's not a siloed, you're not in marketing, you're not in sales, you're not, you're what you are, you are literally trying to get these customers to be your advocates and you're all part of the same team. And these silos just don't, I think what's going to happen, honestly, is people are going to rethink this whole model because there's a new term. I think you probably have heard of it called product led growth. I'm sure you guys even probably practice that, right? Yeah, we um, actually work with that in you know OpenView out of Boston, fantastic yeah, group. Right, yeah. right, and, and and so what's interesting about product led growth is that you know marketing, PR, and all that sort of stuff is kind of the redheaded bastard stepchild. <laughs> They're like, ah, that stuff's got no ROI. Blah 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 blah. You know, and okay, there's some issues with it. It needs to be worked out. But if you think from a product led growth growth flywheel perspective, like I think what you're talking about integrating the entire company around the one thing that matters or the two thing that matters independent of their little silo of whatever, because it's really about how do we get more customers into our, you know, how do we get these prospects to be customers? How do we get these customers 
productive on our product, loving our product? And then how do we build advocates so they're there for a long time and they tell other people? And when you align that with a nice, with a good uh, narrative story arc, then everyone's aligned to the same thing, which I think is what such a brilliant way to put it, that alignment is the essence of telling a better story about your company. I mean, it, you have to, because that's the only way you can align. If no one's saying, if everyone's like going in different directions, it's so fascinating. Now, I wonder if, I'm curious if you find that like part of how you align these companies, especially in digital transformation, where, I mean, they've been doing it for decades or two the same way and you just do it this way. How does storytelling, how does like the, how do you convince them? Because it must be, I mean, you have a tough job, honestly. <laughs> it's like it is, it is a tough job. But I think first off, those that are going to be successful at the transformation, they do a couple of things differently mm-hmm. than everybody okay. else. Okay. Um, they one, they acknowledge that there there is a problem, right? I mean, first they have to own the fact that there's there's an opportunity right. to improve. Um, the next thing that you see that's really different in those that succeed with this and then embracing alignment and re, you know, reinvigorating their companies as they go through this evolution um, is first, they really start with this idea of truth versus reality. Let me explain that a little bit. So in design thinking and in, in uh, behavioral psychology, there's this issue of confirmation bias. And what that really boils down to is this idea of we seek out information or like things to confirm our beliefs. And what you see from great organizational leaders is they say, I understand that this is today's truth and reality. And what I need to understand is what is the truth of our reality five years from now? And then what is the reality of our, for our customer? And so With that, not only are they taking head on this idea of their own bias and stepping outside of their their current space, but they're leading them with a focus on empathy. How do we walk a mile in our shoes of, of the customer and understand what is it that they need? What is their ultimate goal? If we go back to jobs theory, it'd be like, well, why are they going to continue to hire our product and service? Right, right, right. right. And you get to storytelling and this aspect of things and you start to think about, well, storytelling is a huge part of change. It has to be. We, we, you know, as humans connect with stories in such a powerful way. Right. And, but also it's an essence of like, well, what is the story then? Like, what are we going towards? And so the other thing that they do so well is not just that destination of what is that bright future look like in a, in a clear and tangible way, but what they also do is they have this other character trait, which is they don't fall in love with ideas and they don't fall in love with solutions. What they do is they fall in love with the problem they're there to solve. And what's so powerful about that is that when you understand the complexity of a problem and you understand the scope of it and its impact, what does it allow you to do? More authentic messaging and storytelling to engage the customer at every stage of the customer journey. It allows you to resonate with the things that really truly matter, both psychologically and tangibly in, in whatever the value is that you're creating out of that product or service. It helps you shift your understanding that differentiation isn't a silver bullet in this one feature or this potential benefit you're you know, speaking to. It's the combination of things. And so you can take a commoditized product and you add the right attributes to it and it is different. Yeah. You know? And so yeah. you know, a great example is like, you know, I don't remember the name of the company, but there was a company that came out with this idea of pink hammers. And originally people were like, why would I want a pink hammer? It's like, well, you, but the old audience for hammers wasn't the audience anymore. Right. I'm looking for the, the, the next one, you know, yeah. The, yeah. I'm looking for women do it yourself projects, you know, folks that want to like tackle something, but they don't like the other hammers. And, yeah. and there was a whole market for that. And they took a commoditized product with little to no margin and transformed the marketplace of who they were focusing on with yeah. a different story in different attributes and benefits to the product. Um, and they started to create in a whole personalized experience because they understood women wanted some different attributes, smaller handle, handles for hand yeah. size, different use cases. It completely transformed that market concept. 
in the way that they could tell stories. We see the same thing at the scope of digital transformation. Yeah. They're embracing this idea of moving away towards what will the truth of tomorrow be? What is, how do we address like these that. biases? How do we stay in love with the problem? And how do we become more insightful about that problem than any of our competitors? Yeah. What's the truth of tomorrow? I love that. Hopefully you've trademarked that. <laughs> I haven't. But maybe I <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, it's your stream. Cause like to your point about like products that are commoditized, that are transformed. I have a friend who loves this water called liquid death. It's this, it's Alpine spring water in a can. It's water in a can, right? But their marketing and their messaging and what they do is completely cool. Like, love it. I even have a hoodie and a beanie and the whole thing. And because they're just like, we're, we exist to, you know, crush plastic because plastic's evil. And we, anyway, it's a whole thing. I, don't, I can't even do it justice, but, but you're right. I think you, I think as a startup, and this, I think, is the lesson for entrepreneurs as they're building their product. It's not about the features and functions. That's pretty much commoditized. It's yeah. about what, what are problems am I solving? How can I fall in love? I love that falling in love with the problem and really understanding the customer journey and what's, 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 the, what's the reality of the future going to be? Because, again, like even what, what Pep says, he's just like, you got to compete on your brand. And this is basically your brand and how your brand is building these solutions to solve these problems. So it's just fascinating. So fascinating. great brands, great branding, you know, uh, experts, they, they do something that is so important when done right. And, and they know this, right. It's, it's, they're trying to understand what's the psychological value right. of the product. Right. And then they try to figure out how to extend that through identity and all of the things that come following in campaigns and messaging, voice and tone and so forth. And what's really powerful is product teams, you know, to your point of product led growth and this idea that, you know, we're working all together in alignment towards the, these things, you know, you all of a sudden, we're all responsible for customer acquisition. Yeah. We're all responsible for understanding the psychological need of our customer. We're all, you know, uh, responsible collectively for retention, you know, those types of, of, of key things. And from the brand perspective, what I love is understanding, if you think about it, your core product is the psychological value. The actual mm. manifestation of the product is mm. something different. That is more features, benefits. Yeah, so, yeah. And I'll give an example to that. So um, Volvo, yeah, their core product is safety. Yeah. Every single product, every car, everything they produce has to have safety buried into it as its core yeah. because that's the promise of their brand and their product. That's yeah. one of the key things that they're known for. And so then even the things that augment their product, the warranties, the way that they approach service and inspections, everything they do is to reinforce the core promise. And when you think about that, most other car companies are not their competition. And I think this is, is you know, you brought up the entrepreneur, you know, multiple times as we've been talking. This is like one of the most incredible lessons that I ever learned uh, as an entrepreneur um, is that most of the time it's mistaken that our competition are, are companies like us, like in Volvo's case, their competition are not other car manufacturers. They're alternatives to safety. Interesting. That is the true competition. Hmm. So, I mean, Volvo is not competing against, uh, you know, Ferrari. Right. I mean, they make cars. They <laughs> yeah. get you from point A to point B, but they're right. nowhere. In, and you could argue, well, John, that's a ridiculous, you know, analogy because they're, you know, that's a high performance, you know, luxury car. And, like, I'm telling you, Volvo's haul. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's no lack of power in these, yeah. these cars. They're not being stripped down to be more safe right. in that regard. They're innovating safety at the core of their promise. Right. You know, Southwest came out. What they're, they're, they're you know, love heart was at the, at the heart yeah. of that brand. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so they changed the airline industry. And what did they start to do? They started to remove all these little friction points so they could yeah. instill the core of yeah. that as they saw it. You know, no, I, I love huge market love resonated with it. Yeah, totally love Southwest. In fact, they were. 
founded on my birthday. So we're in the same year I was born. So we're like exactly the same age. <laughs> and there's That's no great story. It, well, and there's, of course, like, it's so funny because, you know, you get on the Twitter sphere and everyone's like, oh, I don't need another Southwest story because everything's been overdone. Well, what people don't understand about Southwest is it, it almost didn't happen. Like they had to fight in court to be able to run their business. Some silly rinky dink between Love Field, like these three cities in Texas. And people are like, we don't need another airline in Texas. I mean, you know, Herb Ketchler, the guy, he's like, I, he, had to, he was a lawyer. He had to fight to even like the, even the day before they didn't think they were going to make it. They didn't even think they were going to like be able to, there was an injunction against them. Could you imagine <laughs> like no fighting yeah. to, to even take off? Cause we don't need another airline in Texas. That was the argument from Banff. I think it was Banff was their competitor. And you're like, huh? Like, so yeah, yeah we're going to talk about Southwest again because they're awesome. And everyone can learn from them. Even the tenacity of like, fighting to even get off the ground. Like imagine you had to go to court to start your business. Yeah. That's unbelievable. And, but right. And then I think it was the story and the passion of what he had. I mean, that's again, good example of like, it's just a plane, but they re they thought about the future. They thought about what's the future, you know, what's the future state and how are we going to be different from a commodity? Like that's the ultimate in like doing commodity. So yeah, yeah I love, I love them there. <laughs> but it, again, cool. it comes down whether you're coming at it from a brand angle, a product angle, storytelling, mm-hmm. you know, we're all trying to get to the core, that essence of like, what's the psychological value. Yeah. And that's where we can uh, differentiate. There's a company I love called Rackspace. They do web hosting and yeah. private net, yeah. you know, in, yeah, yeah. cloud infrastructure. They're most famous for is what, what's known as fanatical support. They saw a, a, you know, this absolute horrible customer service experience taking place in the technical world. And you know, if, you, if you're a customer, you call them, you get somebody who's empowered to solve your problem, by the way, yeah. within three rings. That's part yeah. of their guarantee. That That's was, a really high value. That was Southwest's guarantee at the beginning too. <laughs> It's, it's unbelievable. No, but the psychological value is huge. Is, is, huge. is huge, right? It's peace of mind is yeah. what Rackspace sells. They're, yeah. they're selling a premium yeah. service because most IT people lay awake at night waiting for that call. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's devastating, it's yeah. you know, when, when there's a data breach or, or systems go down. Yeah. Um, and, and they said, okay, well, we'll take that off of you. Into, and part of that delivery is making sure we're accessible. They understood yeah. that. You know, and that's that's Mark Graham, who founded that company, did just did a brilliant job in understanding yeah. That, yeah. that that as a business, they had to understand that not just as a brand, but from the core of how they created their product and service offering. Yeah, I think customer service is way underutilized for um, customer retention and actually customer growth. I, I, yeah. I don't understand well, why. Well, I mean, we were talking about healthcare earlier, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's. What, they're they're the biggest ones I think have the most opportunity in the space currently, and this is my personal yeah. opinion. This is is that the idea of patient advocacy or patient success teams who are in that customer service role for within the healthcare industry, there is no one in a better position to offer service recovery and to be empowered. Yeah. And I have yet to see a team that is truly empowered to resolve the patient experience. Yeah, but it's an incredible incredibly powerful role and you know with the opportunity space there is just astronomical for reoccurring revenue and better patient outcomes in in my opinion yeah i mean look at there's like i've done yeah there's like carbon health is in one that's sort of this concierge type so there's a bunch of them one Mm. one medical and stuff like that which i think is moving towards that model it's still kind of broken because you know, it's just healthcare is this fascinating thing where like, you know, when Jane was going through her, her leukemia treatments, you know, we had a social worker assigned to us because clearly the doctors aren't that don't provide that kind of care. <laughs> like, you know, to you, to you, to them, you're a meat puppet. And 
I'm sure a lot of doctors are bitch and moan and complain, but it's true because they have to have a bit of disconnect because it's such a hard job and it's so emotional. And like, you have to be a really special person to see that kind of thing, the suffering. It's hard not to like, you have to disconnect or you're going to go crazy. That's why they have social workers. And yeah, you're right. It just never saw in our experience with it. And even to this day, again, there's some people trying to solve this, but the, the whole idea of customer service for healthcare, like making that experience better, you're at you're almost your worst time in your life. And it's the worst customer experience almost on the planet. I think the only thing, I can't even think of a good experience that I've had. I'm trying to really think maybe, I can't think of one. And you're right. It's a huge opportunity because they also know that the way you're treated by the healthcare profession will directly impact your outcomes. Of course, it's your mental health, it's your it's your anxiety, it's your stress and strain that impacts your health. You know, no no doubt in my mind. And reimagining that is, should be a no brainer. But again, they're stuck in this is the way we've always done it, and their incentive is not there to fix it because they can they just raise premiums every year and. It's 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 stuck. Well, and the the irony to me is the actual, you know, providers, the physicians, the nurses, the mm-hmm. technicians that are working to care for people. They're at least in in the work that I've done. They are the most vocal and advocating. Yes, do that. That would be wonderful. We're stretched thin. We mm-hmm. need you know we need more of that kind of support. Mm-hmm. We don't need more infrastructure. We need more. Uh, you know, we need better facilitation of these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that has, it's just, I mean, the list goes on of how many ways that yeah. could, you know, help so many people. And I think that's the, that's the other facet that I think um, didn't touch on yet, but, you know, companies that are going through transformation of these evolutions really successful, you know, it, you know, they understand in that, that what is the, you know, the truth of the future and that focus and falling along with the problem they really understand the importance of that continuous feedback loop that has to be happening. It's, you know, there's this idea of continuous discovery and innovation and evolution of a business instead of, this is how we do it. Here's our standing operator procedures. Now we just do it this way. Right. It's like, that is it's broken. You know, it, it's, it's a broken model. We should be, we should have a mechanism for learning um, there's a great study on, on, on adult education and competency. And one of the pieces of, of some of that work that I love is to understand that in a team, you know, our, our, we have as individuals our own competency, but we rarely look at what's the collective competency of a mm. team or an organization. Mm. And I think once you start to look at collective competency, you start to understand how you know, how do you build more successful teams? How do you close those gaps? And where, yeah. where are the weakest aspects of that? And that continuous feedback that you can get from customers, especially if you're in early stage, for example, like a tech startup or something yeah. like that. Like, you, need, you need to close loop. Oh my quick gosh. Loop. It's like, that's the, the faster you can run that yeah. process. And that, it's that like feedback. a, it's like an ODA loop. I don't know if you heard of it. You know what an ODA loop is? Yeah. The ODA loop and stuff. Yeah. yeah it's an Air Force uh, fighter pilot. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I don't. Model. Yeah, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he wrote a famous book, uh, and that was all about like how to uh, <laughs> how to win in a dogfight when, you, when you're in a plane. But he 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 transformed the way the Air Force does that. He actually transformed the way military strategy works in terms of I think what you were talking about when digital transformation occurs. You want to push all that decision making down to the lowest incremental level of the people during the work. Right. A lot of people call this uh, decentralized command, where commander's intent, like a lot of the military stuff, has, have been doing this because they realize in a battlefield the dynamics of it change so quick. You can't call HQ and be like, "Well, hey, you know," like because it's life and death. And typically, when life and death is at stake, those models seem to like they figured out the best way to do it because if they screw it up, people die. Yeah. They have more practice. <laughs> they have more practice and, and, and not, you know, and, you know, the analogy that about business and warfare and everything, you know, aside, cause I don't, I don't, I don't agree that business is war. It's just 
It's nothing completely, totally different, but the structures that are that been put in place on how to manage teams, decentralized command, and this whole idea of getting the decision makers and empowering the people at the level of doing the work. Because, you know, when you're four levels up from it, you, you don't have no clue what's going on. In fact, I always tell like managers and leaders, I say, you have no control over what people do. You're, you're like zero control. You, you can only influence what they do. And if you, that's your job is influence and communicating and storytelling to align the organizations that they're going the way that you think they should go. But the rest of it, people are going to do what they want to do because <laughs> you have no control over that. No, I, I, I'm trying to remember, I, and I hope I don't get this wrong. I think it was Colonel John Boyd. That Boyd, yeah. Colonel John Boyd. Yep. And, yep. and you, I mean, but you're spot on. I mean, in that concept, right, they're trying to make decisions in seconds, milliseconds even, you know, just like how quickly can we do critical things? And organizations are always looking for ways to, how do we make better decisions? How do we speed up how we make decisions? And, right. you know, with autonomy and, or that idea of autonomy, and decentralizing kind of the old structures, you know, it's a beautiful example that you're bringing up around the Ubu because we want everybody in an organization to be empowered to make decisions at, that are appropriate to, you know, their, where they sit in the organization and their abilities to contribute. And that is, you know, I, I don't know any entrepreneur or business you know, owner or leader who doesn't want to work with people who know how to take that empowerment and do great things. We want to see our, our colleagues succeed. We want to see them make good decisions and thrive and practices like that are, are, are essential. I think, you know, ironically, this brings us all the way back though, in order to decentralize that. And, you know, if you're four levels removed, how the only way that person at the top that's four levels removed from that can ensure that good decisions are being made is that they've made a commitment to alignment. Mm -hmm. How have they maintained that alignment? So it, it exactly. can, you know, transcend across the spectrum of the organization. Yep. And I think that's where you see, you know, companies have been incredibly um, successful and no one does it perfect. And I think right. maybe that's worth calling out to, to those listening to the show today too, is it was like, it's not about that it's going to be perfect. It's yeah. that you have to keep doing it. It's the yeah. consistency of the application of working towards alignment that drives high performing teams and organizations. There's, we're human. We make mistakes. There's, we all have bad days. All of these things are natural. So it's not to remove humanity, it's to inject it into our organizations and to its full capacity. 100%. Uh, I'm glad we brought it full out loop circle. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what, what sort of advice would you give or actually what questions do you think that the next generation of entrepreneurs should ask themselves as they consider doing this job? I like to say this because a lot of times, you know, we give advice, but I also like to say, hey, these are some things you should think about. So what questions should they ask themselves if they think, hey, I may want to be an entrepreneur? I think that if, if they're thinking about being an entrepreneur, um, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is do they love the problem that they're thinking mm -hmm. about solving? Do you love the problem? I love that. I think in order to have, to maintain passion and commitment towards the absolute uh, necessities of building a business um, and whether it's a lifestyle business, or you're trying to do something big and create the next unicorn. I mean, it, it doesn't matter, but you have to love the problem. You have to be in love with the work because very quickly uh, you'll, you'll run out of energy uh, for it. Well, that's true. <laughs> the dark night I, of the soul, as they say in storytelling. <laughs> I, I also think there's a lot of, great information, but it's not always as accurate as it should be when it comes to understanding and identifying your customer. Mm. And so an example of that, that I think entrepreneurs really need to think about is like, one, what's the size and spending power of your market? Mm. Most things you look at or research will, will ask you to answer that question. What is, you know, do you have an accessible buyer? Meaning, can you access the people that will be able to purchase your product or service? Again, most systems will ask you to do that. Um, you know, a lot of them will also ask you um, questions like, well, what channels can you access that buyer in? 
but very, very few guides to that step will ask you, does your core audience have a similar motivation set of behaviors? Because if you're trying to tell a story and you're getting started and you want that story to have the biggest possible impact and connect with the problem that you're in love with solving, you need them to, to replicate your success. You need to be connecting with people who have a similar need. And so when we focus on demographics, we're, we're not really doing the work yet that it takes to really understand how are we going to build a successful business? I mean, there's a reason why most businesses statistically fail. Right, right. And we have to do that work up front. And we can do it through trial and error. If you have that capacity, that's a beautiful thing because you'll right. learn so much. Right. And, and I'm all for, for that approach if you can do that. But you have to go in with at least a hypothesis or a good assumption based on your own experience and education of what that is to have the opportunity to really learn and be successful. And I think entrepreneurs need to, to really ask, start asking themselves those questions from the beginning as well. Because there's this idea that keeps getting kicked around of fail fast, fail often, yeah. which is dangerous when not understood. You know, that's, that's meaningful in the environment of I'm going to test an idea and I'm going to get feedback and I'm going to innovate or in, in, um, iteratively on what I'm doing. But failure is not the objective. And so things like that get really deeply misunderstood. It, it's, you know, also why there's, I think, really big challenges for entrepreneurs around this idea of just build it, just start coding. Yeah. And I get the reason why people say that, but you know, we just need to be agile and nimble. Well, you don't start agile development without having a plan. You know, so you can waste a tremendous amount of time, let alone money and, and, and other things. But I focus on time because it's the only thing you can't buy back. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's money finite. can solve most of the other problems, but the time is actually the finite resource that you have. Yep, yep. And... You know, if, if you're like me, I have small kids. If I make a decision, I'm choosing to take time from one area of my life to another. Mm-hmm. And so I think as an entrepreneur, especially if you're, you know, um, you know, just getting started or you're later in your life and you've got that, that itch, just ask yourself some of these fundamental questions to give yourself a stronger platform for actually being able to have success and beating those odds. Can you recap the the three? I think it was three that you mentioned those questions. Yeah. So I would say making sure, are you in love with the problem? Okay. I think is is essential. Two is what are the behaviors of of your audience? And you know, what what is those motivations that that trigger them? And three is really staying focused on making sure that you have that plan. How are you actually going to be able to really engage before you start designing or building products and investing in development, you know, and then, and then start testing, take an iterative approach. It doesn't have to be perfect, just has to be enough to get to the next step. And then customers will tell you what's needed next. Wow. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for your time. It's so great. I can't, can't wait to read your book alignment. I'm always, I love anyone that's an author is a special place in my heart since I'm an author and I know how hard it is to actually write a book. Um, but it's always so great to talk to you about, you know, like your journey and it's just really fascinating and appreciate your time, stay safe and, you know, continued success. Sounds like you're on to something. Well, thank you so much, Jerry. It's great to, to connect today. And I really, really love the conversation. Thanks, Jonathan, for an awesome, truly awesome interview. Really appreciate your insights into all things transformational alignment and the whatnot. So as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from Jonathan. Get clear on your vision. Make sure your product vision has a clear destination and is measurable. Now, a lot of times this may change depending on the stage of company you're at, but it's always good to have those, you know, one or two metrics that matter and really have like, where am I going to go? Because there's going to be a lot of times where you're going to zig and zag, you know, through the proverbial forest, through the trees kind of thing. And if you always have that kind of North star guiding you where you're wanting to go, that's always going to be a better way to uh, handle any of these zigs and zags and challenges. 
recognize problems as they arise and embrace them as opportunities for improvement. As you know, right, all of the challenges and struggles of a startup, I mean, there are many. So if you see uh, an issue or an opportunity, a problem, a challenge, embrace it. Try to figure out how you can uh, solve it and or kind of move through it because startups are all about solving problems. Don't fall in love with ideas or strategies. Fall in love with the problem. I think this is probably the best piece of advice Jonathan gave. I love that it's more focused on solving the problems that your potential customers may have as opposed to some whiz-bang, better, faster, cheaper, super cool tech thing that'll probably change, (laughs) which they always do. You know, every startup pivots multiple times. So yeah, fall in love with the problem. Wise, sage advice, Jonathan. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.